Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a special edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Dominic Fifield of The Athletic, and making his debut, Paul Hayward, the author and journalist. We'll begin with a statement of the obvious. Football isn't the same without fans. They leave a void emotionally and, in too many cases, financially. We wanted to pay homage to them. The result is a documentary, Ours, that airs on BT Sport 1 tomorrow night. I've tried to give an insight into the passion the principles and the potential of a series of clubs. Now, Paul, you feature in it when we look at Lewis, a great example of a socially conscious club. What role do you think, if any, will fans play in football's future? Well, the first thing we'll see, Mike, is this flooding back into the game. The gates will swing open and fans will pour in with this immense sense of relief. And the clubs from top to bottom will feel the same flood of relief because fans have been missed. You know, we'll wait to see whether the players feel the same uh, joy when they've got fans holding them to account again. But there's going to be a, there's going to be an adding up. Clearly, there's a massive difference between the bottom end of the spectrum where fans are needed desperately financially in the Premier League end where, although they've lost a fair amount of money between them, these 20 clubs, they have managed OK without fans. You know, they've kept the show on the road. But Premier League fans in particular, I think, will, will, will maybe start to view their, their roles. They'll stock take, if you like, and, and um, decide which bits of it they like and which bits they don't. And they've had plenty of time to think about that, certainly over the last 12 months. Yeah. Do you think, Dom, fans actually recognise their financial power? And is their loyalty exhaustible? Premier League level, it's it's debatable whether they they recognise that the, the, the financial clout that they they have because because it's broadcast rights driven and that's what's sustaining the the clubs through this period. I think that the toils of lower league clubs and non league clubs in particular, which was illustrated brilliantly in in the film, by the way, just the the amount of the reliance of of these clubs on on supporters coming in through the gates. I think that has has really been rammed home, and 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 I think in that in that wave of emotion that that will accompany their return, the, the relief that the clubs will feel will largely be borne on finances. I would have thought, you know, we're finally getting people in through the gates, we're finally getting ticket prices or ticket income again, which is so key, and 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 it you know knock on with sponsorships and you know VIP and commercial etc. That's that all that all comes into it. I hope that I hope that this this period does recalibrate the relationship between supporters and their clubs. I think even at Premier League level, a lot of fans who have been absent and have watched their teams and their clubs carrying on without them have have grown immensely frustrated at certain aspects of of life. It's it's really exacerbated any frustrations they may have, for example, with the team and, and the style of play that they're they're adopted. They have expected football to entertain them properly during this period and on and, and a lot of occasions it simply hasn't because clubs have 
prioritised, say, for example, survival over entertainment, even more so than they would have done, because the implications of relegation from the Premier League now are even more exacerbated than they would be normally given the pandemic. But whether or not that actually happens and, and plays out, I, I don't. I don't know. Well, it'll be, it'll be intriguing to see. I mean, some of the stories that you covered in the in the documentary, real eye openers at, at all ends. You know, from the top to bottom of the of the spectrum. And one image that that struck me in particular was seeing you, you, you're 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 going back to Nane Park and and Rushton and Diamonds and seeing it derelict now. I just, I mean, that was remarkable and not something that I'd anticipated or knew about. It's uh, properly eye-opening stuff. Well, I suppose that uh, does illustrate one of the dangers that clubs face. You know, with Rushton in particular, you know, they threw in their lot or with, with one individual, Max Griggs, and when, his, when he basically his business interests overrode any football advantage that he saw from that football club and on a personal level rather than a professional level basically the football club were was almost well it was actually destroyed by his whims in the end he sold it to to them to the fans for a pound and they were eventually eliminated from the conference i suppose on the broader issue paul what are the other dangers do you feel to clubs as they emerge from the pandemic. You know, we're seeing excessive tribalism around. There's, there's the corporatism of the game is, is, is creeping in. If we are going to have a reset, what form should that take? Well, I think generally fans over the last decade or so have been turned into consumers and they're expected to be passive consumers, customers, the teams and the players have become more remote. They feel like they're, you know, walking into shopping emporiums rather than clubs. There's all these very deep cultural things going on that, that can lead to alienation. And I think if, if the addiction to football in this country wasn't so strong and people didn't love the game so much, football would have a much bigger problem on its hands because it doesn't generally treat fans particularly well. I'm talking, obviously, in the round. Uh, there, are, there are clubs that treat their fans magnificently and they have a community sense community spirit but in general I, I don't feel listening and talking to fans that they generally feel particularly valued or welcomed you know they they they, they have to put aside their grievances to go to football every week and 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 the more they express those and the more they translate that into action in terms of what you know what they will and won't put up with the more football clubs are going to come to understand that they can't just treat fans as social media numbers. Yeah, I suppose, you know, within the film, uh, you've got a group of fans capable of leading by example at Portsmouth. You know, I'm sure that was a story you covered, Dom. You know, what are the wider lessons of what, of what they did down at Portsmouth? I went down to see them in 2014 and spent a couple of days down there. Andy Orford was, was the manager and they were training on the at a at a park at the time they were they're just getting the the planning permission for their new training ground but it was very much you know rocking up at at the local park with in in vans with all the kit in and the balls and and the players would all turn up in their cars and it it was like a sunday league setup but it was still really refreshing given everything that that had preceded it i think at the time they they had still had to pay something like eight million pounds to to twenty one former players from that era, from the era when they you know getting to FA Cup finals uh, regularly and and competing in in the, in the Premier League. And what they achieved at Pompey was astonishing, um, even though it was accompanied with the team dropping down the divisions and in, into the bottom tier. I think it felt cleansed of of all the. Well, the bogus owners. Let's be honest. I mean, again, you go into that in the film, but the when you when you actually see it all listed out in front of you, all these people that own the club, and 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 you wonder why they bothered to buy Portsmouth Football Club, and it, and it it just became an asset stripping exercise for so many different people. I can you can see in that context why fan ownership worked so well at Pompey, but the flip side of that was. It only took them so far in terms of climbing back up the divisions. And there were 
obviously Portsmouth fans wanted to compete at the highest level they possibly could. And even those guys in in the boardroom from the Supporters Trust recognised that there was a ceiling to what they could achieve. And so when Eisner came in and, 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 the, and the money was, was thrown at them, they had that awkward choice to make, you know, do we give up what we've built here because we think this is a safer ownership structure than what we've experienced previously and it can take us to that next level? Or do we carry on and, and compete at the level we're at now? And they went with the, the former option, and I think it probably was a sensible one. And it's, I don't know how far it will take them, but you know, this is a club that's now competing regularly to get out of League One into the Championship, and and you know, a club of that size with that supporter base should be in the Championship at the very very least. But it, as an exercise, it, look, it was it was life affirming. It was it was emotionally emotional to, to actually be around that club at the time and, and to see those supporters relishing the fact that this was their club again. They trusted the people in the boardroom to take them to take them forwards as opposed to the mismanagement that they'd had for, for years at the Premier League level. What about the the broader impact of football clubs in you know in a social sense, Paul? You speak in the film of your, you know, affiliation to Lewis and the principles that they espouse. Is that a sustainable model? Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say, Mike, despite the slight negativity of what I said earlier, I'm incredibly lucky because where I live in Brighton, my local Premier League team is a is a model club in many ways. It's run by a pure benefactor who's put hundreds of millions of pounds of his own money into the club. It, it's a club with a strong community awareness. It's 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 very rooted in the in, in the town and, and people appreciate that. And then five miles up the road I've got Lewis, which is the first club to pay their women's and men's teams equally as you explained so well in the film so in, in a sense you know I've got I've got ideal models at both ends of the the scale there so it, it is possible it is possible for football clubs to be run in the interests of their supporters obviously money is always going to be paramount and it's a kind of it's a dog-eat-dog world in in so many ways but again going back to your film it there, there's so much room for encouragement there. You realise that it doesn't have to be a smash and grab exercise. It doesn't have to be a playground for asset strippers and, and speculators, you know, and, and fans have this power that perhaps they don't realise they actually have to save and restore their their own football clubs. Do you think, Dom, there's scope for greater innovation the lower down the pyramid that you go? You know, I'm thinking of new models are emerging, you know, we look at hashtag you know, the group of YouTubers called the Sidemen who've become involved with with Leighton Orient. They are offering the opportunity to attract a whole new audience, aren't they? Yeah, it's astonishing. I, I, I know I'm showing my age, really, but I, I didn't know about the Sidemen or hashtag. <laughs> I was blissfully unaware of my club as well, which was obviously less successful at Ebbsfleet, but. Um, my word! I mean, the hashtag thing is 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 incredible. I mean, it's an interesting one because it football traditionally has always been about has always had that local community spirit at the heart of it. I mean, that that's what it was all about, and it grew from that. And this is something as you as you make the, the point in the film that this is actually throwing it out to a wider audience first, and then and then almost coming in on itself to find a, a local hub. And there has to be room for innovation like that. Absolutely. I mean, that that's. That's part of it. I mean, whether it could ever <laughs> become a a league phenomenon, I, I have my doubts. But but I, I do think, in terms of social social media and 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 YouTube and 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 those platforms, I mean, clubs have to embrace stuff like that now. They have to. It's it's it's. <laughs> I'm 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 someone who's left a traditional newspaper to go and work for a basically an app. I should be I should be all over this stuff. I'm still learning all the time. It's uh, you have to you have to embrace this innovation and 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 hashtag United and and the Sidemen have, have have shown the way in football. Look, I don't know how far it can take you can take it, but you know I suspect that the people that are setting this stuff up don't think along traditional boundaries. They probably feel as if they can take it as as far as they want to take it. Yeah, I suppose we we do overlook the fact that. The professional game, as we know it, is essentially a Victorian invention. And I suppose then that begs the question, Paul, what shape do you think football will take in the future? Will we see 
a divergence between you know a super league type model and a community club model you know what what role for instance will will fan run clubs play and what are the pros and cons of that yeah, I mean, if you were starting football clubs up now, you wouldn't you wouldn't follow the Victorian model, would you? And, and if you look at every other industry, the ownership model has evolved constantly. Actually, funny enough, when I was researching my book on the England men's football team, I discovered that a lot of the founding fathers, the early FA kind of older men, didn't believe that an individual should own a football club. They thought it was anathema to them, that a football club was a community institution and it, and it wasn't there to be picked off by a rich local businessman. So there was actually a much stronger community spirit in the Victorian times around football than uh, people probably would expect. But obviously then it evolved into a, into a business and a business opportunity. And now it's a, a mass globalised entertainment form. So yes, Mike, I mean, you're going you're gonna, to, we're going to end up with a, some kind of European Super League one way or another. And we're going to end up with community clubs that are forced to come up with new and innovative means to um, survive and prosper. And until I watched your film, I hadn't realised what the possibilities were. It never occurred to me really that I know I knew about fans groups getting together and saving clubs at Portsmouth and places like that. And indeed at Brighton, my local club. But I hadn't really thought very much, as Dom just said, about the possibility of starting from fresh with a completely new model and saying, right, how are we going to... How are we going to invent a football club, you know, the, the, in the kind of digital age? And it's it's it really did open my eyes to the, the possibility that football's got a got a, a kind of new and and more interesting future, and it's not just doomed to be sort of polarized and you know impoverished at the lower ends. Yeah, when you when you look at international football as you have been, Paul, what role do you think supporters play? with the England team. And my sense is that there is a, not apathy is too strong a word, but but international football seems to be just merging into the, in, in, into the margins a little bit. Do you think fans care about the national team as much as they did? I've noticed that as well. I think it's based on the size and the power and the addictiveness of the, of the Premier League. And when international football comes along, this is non-tournaments. Tournaments are fine. Everybody becomes English then and, and gets behind the team and, and wants to see them win it. But in between times, you're right, international football is in danger of being seen as, a, as a, an interruption to the Premier League you know, diet of thrills and spills. And that, that is a problem, particularly in England, where, where the Premier League, I think, is more pervasive than any other major league in any other country, possibly. I mean, Spain might, you know, take issue with that with La Liga, but but ultimately, England is ha- England having to fight for space and fight for attention in a way that is is well, it's been happening for about I'd say about 15, 20 years, possibly, and it's a challenge. But in the tournaments, the England team belongs to everybody. It becomes a becomes a national sensation, and as we know, when England got to the World Cup semi final in Russia. I think 26 million people watched that game against uh, Croatia. So, so the affection is still there. It's just become buried somewhat by Premier League and Champions League action. Yeah, if we're looking at the the, the epitome of the modern model, Don, we're looking at Manchester City. You know, it's an expanding global model. They're almost becoming consultants now to other clubs. Is there a point that they will reach? probably very soon, that they will become too powerful for for the common good? I realise that could be a hospital password question, so I apologise in advance for asking it. Yeah, rival rival supporters will say so, yeah, definitely. And, and you could have the same argument, I guess, about PSG in France and, and Qatari influence there. I would say that, that a more positive spin is it, it demands... The other elite clubs, whether they're backed by oligarchs or or rival states or, or or big groups from America, it demands that they find a way of of making inroads. Still, of they they find a way of eclipsing Manchester City in their their vast wealth and talent. And look at you know it's we, we it's easy to to. Well, I mean, we, we should really be focusing on what's happening on the pitch in terms of Manchester City. I mean, given that they're, that they're probably achieving 
even by their standards, something absolutely remarkable this season. But we don't know what's going to happen, you know, the day that Pep Guardiola leaves Manchester City. We don't know whether the, there would be a, a period of readjustment that would offer other teams and other clubs uh, an opportunity to come in there and take their crown. I mean, it's not as if Manchester City have enjoyed it all their own way in the last few years either. They weren't even champions last season. So, uh, you know, it's the, the economic model obviously is, is very difficult to compete against, but on the pitch, it is possible to to beat them on occasion as much as 20 league wins or 20 wins in all competitions would suggest otherwise. <laughs> so there is hope, but it's, it's the onus is on the elite. And I said it, you know, I think we all said it when, when, when it looked as if Abramovich's money was going to dominate the Premier League. Well, it, it, it did, but then Manchester United found a way of, of, of beating them and then Manchester City emerged. I think that football at that elite, elite level will continue to attract um, money from owners or states or hedge funds or whatever that 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 that, that, that will that will make in, life interesting in terms of what happens on the pitch. Mm. Speaking of, of on being on the pitch, Paul, what about the the evolution of of this team, the Pep Guardiola's team? Is it almost because it's beautiful? It, it's you know some of the football that they play is beautiful. Is this team almost? Pep's final masterpiece before he retires. It's looking that way, but it's 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 funny, isn't it? Because not that long ago, six months ago, maybe people were saying, "Oh, this is the end of the Guardiola experiment. It's run its course." You know, they can't win the Champions League. Liverpool have become the the dominant force in English football, and it it looked as if a very good idea had run out of steam, but it's regenerated itself partly because Liverpool have fallen away, admittedly. But the, he's moved it on and they are playing uh, a less kind of Barcelona-esque style now, I would say. They're, they're, they're more direct and functional in a good way. They're still, they're still beautiful to watch. But, you know, <clears throat> if there's one part of a team where you can't be successful in if you haven't got it right is, is, is at centre-back. And they found a centre-back pairing to completely stabilise the attacking end of the team. They didn't have that before. And sometimes we look for complex explanations and sometimes they're actually quite simple if you if you get the back of the team sorted out so that it has, what, 16 clean sheets, I think, or something, Manchester City. Mm. Uh, yeah. when, you, when you give the attacking players that kind of platform, then you're back in business. And it also helps if your closest rival, Liverpool, slightly uh, implode. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think... Chelsea's a club you know well, Don. What do you think would happen to that club if Roman Abramovich's personal circumstances changed? Would it be forced to maybe rely on the academy as a source of consistent talent rather than the cash cow? Well, we're told that there, there are contingency plans in place and, and uh, you know, that if, if something did happen and, and the source of funding that is there at the moment that, that allowed them to spend over £200 million last summer with withdrawn overnight, that, that actually there would be, there is a they they would survive they wouldn't they wouldn't suddenly be you know up the swanee but but they he he has built the infrastructure up i mean let's be honest so they do have one of the best if not the best academies in in the country so if if and and that running that actually is is probably i don't know it's probably the equivalent of one of their elite players annual wage to actually run that place so the, the the basis again the foundation is is in place for for them to survive yeah i mean obviously that would it would temper expectations and and their targets would shift overnight as well but but the talent is is there and and the the, the locally nurtured talent is 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 very much present and it's i mean that was one of the the probably the the greatest benefit of of the lampard tenure as as manager was was to to bring through and offer opportunities to players like Mason Mount and and uh, Reese James etc. Tammy Abraham, and these guys have got the talent to to thrive. Uh, I, I you know we, we're not at that stage yet with the Baramich, but but you know that's that's sort of been hovering. That possibility has always been there, and it, I guess it is 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 there with any elite club that the money might suddenly be withdrawn overnight. Yeah, well, as a case in point, uh, Wolves are at the Etihad on, on Tuesday night. Do you think 
people, they might be vulnerable to a shift in, in Chinese government policy. We, we know all too well that, that football doesn't exist in a vacuum, either socially, medically or politically. And it's interesting, these warning signs that are coming from China, the, the Super League champions there, Jiangsu, have ceased operations. Uh, their owners, who also own Inter Milan, who still own Manchester United 51 mi- million euros for Lukaku you're looking at a bit of a knock-on effect there if they they basically default on that Wolves are they vulnerable as well well I can see why the Chinese league the idea of a Chinese super league is vulnerable because that's very it's a very domestic proposition without Champions League football. If you can't get into the Champions League, you can't go anywhere in, in a Chinese Super League. You can be, you can have a very inter- entertaining local spectacle, but it doesn't really translate globally, does it? So I can understand why the the future for Chinese investors in football would be abroad, and particularly in the Premier League, and that's what we've seen with Wolves. But you're right, Mike. I mean, that is, that's a very, that's a very volatile situation, and you know things change politically, business priorities change. And you always slightly worry about a club that has, you know, so many of its chips on one square on the on the at the roulette table. Once those chips are taken away, you could be in trouble very very quickly. I mean, Wolves fans, I'm sure, have enjoyed the ride and they're enjoying watching a higher class of player than they've probably seen since the you know 1950s, I suppose. But they will know that it is it is provisional, it is tenuous. Just want to get back to being on the pitch, Dom. Staying with Chelsea, probably. Thomas Tuchel, is he meeting his KPIs? I think he's probably done all that, that we could have expected of him. I think, I think again, he's he's done very, very well in terms of providing a structure, a defensive foundation upon which Chelsea can build. They're obviously a lot more organised now than they, they were over that six to eight week period where it all unravelled for Lampard. There seems to be a strategy at play now in terms of the players knowing what is expected of them out on the pitch. I think certain aspects around the club, the communication, talking to people at Chelsea, they 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 suggesting that it's a lot more open, as you'd expect probably from a new manager coming into a job, to be honest. I mean, he's got to get people on side from the off. He doesn't. He, he's inherited a, a club that and a, and a squad that was underachieving for a for a period of time, but the. But we could all see that the talent was there, and I think he's 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 done as well as as anyone could have expected to do. I mean, I, this is the test. This run of games is is a is a true test. When they go to, I mean, there was a wonderful result in Bucharest against Atletico Madrid, a solid point against Manchester United. When they probably they they probably came away feeling a bit disappointed. In fairness, on on, on Sunday, they've now got the two Liverpool clubs, Liverpool and Everton two Merseyside teams who will provide a real test of where, where Chelsea are at. And then Atletico Madrid, and, and then I'd include Leeds away just because of their pitch, to be honest, because that is such a leveller. It's such a difficult surface on which to play. So once we've emerged from those fixtures, we'll have a better idea of, of how much true progress Tuchel has instigated at Chelsea. But I do think that you've just got a very caddy manager who knows what he's doing and he's he's made the impact that you'd expect him to to make it at a at a club that had full that was bags bag full of, of of talent but had lost its way in terms of structure. Mm. What do you make of Manchester United, Paul? They're twelve points behind City after that goalless draw at Chelsea. What do they need to go to the next level? Do you think? Well, after the draw with the nil nil draw with Chelsea, um, Sky flashed up a a board of, of Manchester United's results against top six opponents since they got hammered 6-1 at home by Spurs. And there's and it's I think it's four it's four nil-nil draws in a row against top six opposition. So what that tells you is that that 6-1 defeat to Spurs left a real imprint on them and they don't want to go through that again. They're trying to avoid it. So against teams of comparable quality, they're playing with a a, a lot more caution than an Alex Ferguson Manchester United team would have played. And that's understandable in a way because I think Manchester United are trying to make some 
you know big leaps forward and you can't make them all in one go it's it's a it's a it's a process i would look at oligonosolsky's team and say that he, most of what he's doing is looks absolutely correct and spot on you know but the, but it's not it's not a linear process and they're not going to get to challenging manchester city uh, in in the time frame that they've had given that they made so many bad buys and made so many bad decisions in the transfer market most of which they're still trying to correct but there's the essence of a very good team there it's just a bit inconsistent and it lacks conviction when it's up against a top class opponent but it's it, but it's all it's all progress as far as i can see has the nature of that club changed you know since the days you, know, you wrote an acclaimed book with sir alex ferguson his imprint was on that club for for more than two decades has the nature of the football club changed since well it, it's it I think it has. I think what, what, what happened was, obviously, the Glazers bought Manchester United because they thought it was an undervalued brand and they thought they could sweat more money from the brand and all they were interested in really was doing deals. It was a deal-making factory and the playing side took care of itself because they had Sir Alex Ferguson as manager. He went and then they started making sort of snap decisions on managers and lurching around and sacking managers and making bad decisions in the transfer market. But what seems to have happened... I think, is that they've realised they're actually in danger of, of undermining this, this cash cow that they, that they bought and that the playing side had to be stabilised. So they've started to make better decisions again. They've started to think of the playing side as actually the most important part of Manchester United and not just a, a, a sideshow, you know, to the, to the deal-making. And, and I, I think, to be fair to them, it's starting to have an effect. They've got, they've got better people in place. They've got a manager that they've kept faith with, even though a lot of people were saying he should be sacked because he was too inexperienced. And, and on the pitch now, you look at them and start to think, well, they look like Manchester United again. They're not as good as the Ferguson teams and they're, they're inconsistent. And you can see the flaws in them, but at least it, it feels a bit more like a football club again than it did three or four years ago. Mm, I suppose... We're looking at two things, aren't we, Dom, there? They probably need to breed the mentality to win the biggest games, which might not be there. And also, are they in danger of overburdening Bruno Fernandes, who you know, by any measure is one of the signings of, of, of the last year or so? Because with, without him firing, there's not a lot of creativity there, is there? No, it's you know they're not they're not like a Manchester City that is creating chances. For, you know, even the goalkeeper is setting up goals with City, whereas whereas United it all seems to funnel through Bruno Fernandes at the moment, and which which makes the decision to to start him in in the Europa League tie against Sociedad last week all the more baffling because just just give this guy a bit of a break now and again. Uh, he I thought he looked. He looked uh, jaded against Chelsea at the weekend, but that's probably because Angola Conte was all over him. And that was one of the battle, the tactical battles that, that Tuchel won that day, albeit potentially at a cost for some of Chelsea's attacking play. Yeah, I mean, I think that just shows you where United are. They're, I think they, they probably are the, the second best team in the division. And that's with Fernandez firing. But if they want to topple Manchester City at the moment... They're going to need a few other options for for goals and creation to relieve that burden on, on one player. But, you know, I th the problem is they're up against an exceptional team. And last year they're up against two exceptional teams because Liverpool were excellent. And you'd imagine that Liverpool come back again next season. They find a way, find a way of, of restoring some of their, their glitz and glamour from, from last year. So it's, it's, it's part of the evolution of, of, of Solskjaer's side. It'll be interesting to see how they attack the transfer market in the summer. Do you get the feeling that um, that because Solskjaer can't always quite trust his centre-backs 100%, and, his, and indeed his goalkeeper sometimes, because David De Gea is not the goalkeeper he was, that he has to play, or he feels he has to play more kind of defensive screening midfielders than he would really want to, and that contributes to the problem you've just mentioned, Don, the lack of creativity in midfield. He's got you've got too many, too many kind of um, not journeyman midfield players, but but ball winning and and you know um, screening players. And that and he likes to play a front three, obviously. So that limits his options in terms of creative players. I mean, Donny van der Beek's the obvious example to go and play with Bruno Fernandes and take some of the creative pressure on him. But they don't seem to quite rate him yet, do they? So Dom, United are at, at Selhurst Park on Wednesday. 
How can a club like Palace compete in a modern Premier League? Well, that's a that's a really good question, and this is a club, incidentally, that is backed by two multi, multi, multi millionaires, if not billionaire owners, in the from the United States, who have, I would argue, almost been a bit reluctant to to part with their cash in recent times. So I, I don't know whether the 2010 CPFC ownership looks at what Harris and, and Blitzer have, have, have done at, at Crystal Palace and, and are disappointed with the, the level of investment that's come in. But I would suggest that the supporters have been a bit dismayed by the way things are going. I mean, just, just look at things like net spend, you know, I hate, I hate having going down that road and Palace's wage bill is onerous and, and, and substantial and they haven't, they haven't rejuvenated their squad in a particularly clever way in, in recent times, but they don't spend money. They don't spend money. I mean, look at, you know, Brighton, for a prime example, Brighton have probably spent about five times as much money as Crystal Palace in the last three years, three or four years. They're comfortably the lowest spenders on transfer fees in, in the division. So I to compete, I mean, what what is competition for Crystal Palace? It's, it's probably being in being in in mid table and, and pushing up towards the top half and 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 maybe thinking about Europa League qualification. Well, you could argue that Roy Hodgson, without any budget to spend in in the market, has has achieved mid table. It hasn't been pretty to watch. None of it's been pretty to watch, really, apart from a spell when they had Johan Kibai and Ruben Loftus Cheek in their midfield a few seasons back. But it's really effective, and I, for one completely admire the way that Hodgson tackles it. I mean, even even at the moment, when we, you know, like, Palace won't get anything out of United and Spurs in the next two games, but but the, the reality was they needed to get at least four points from their previous two games, and they did somehow. So now they're in a position where they've got the most points they've ever had in the Premier League after 26 matches. So it's... it's and I think, actually, I think it's only the top five and Arsenal have got more points than them in the calendar year. So you can't really complain too much at that. Mm. But there was that sense, given the way that the relegation battle is contracting, that that Fulham missed the chance against them on Sunday. Do you agree with that, uh, Paul? Possibly, but uh, I would, I, I think that Fulham are playing well and they're picking up points and they've gone from being a team that looked doomed quite quickly to being one that knows what it's trying to do. It's got a very good manager, Scott Parker, has got them organised and working and enthusiastic. They're certainly not a team have given up on the idea of staying in the Premier League, and they're you know they're making ground on Newcastle and Brighton. So although there'll be individual games where you say, oh well, Fulham could have got more from that game. Overall, their sort of recovery, second half of the season recovery, is going very very well. And I bet those players will turn up at the training ground thinking, um, you know, we can stay in the Premier League if we do the right things, carry on doing the right things, I should say. Yeah, we've got Spurs at the Cottage on Thursday, Dom. Gareth Bale getting due respect at last? Yeah, he'd probably argue he's getting an opportunity at last to to get some game time and rhythm. He was outstanding against Burnley, but I, I suspect that that Fulham will be far harder to break down. Fulham's re- revival, is, again, has been born on a solid defence. That's That was the first thing that, that Parker put in place, and... The arrivals of, of Tosin and, and, and Anderson, in particular at centre-half, have, have been revelatory. They, those, those two have, have provided them with this platform from which they, they have this survival bid ongoing. And they've added a bit of bite. And it's great to see Loftus-Cheek you know, back approaching something close to his best and marauding forward. And I think they'll, they'll, I think they'll test Spurs. I think there'll be a proper test of them this week. And we'll see a better... Be a better indication of where Tottenham are, you know. When when you score in the first minute against Burnley and then their entire game plan gets wrecked, you want that. that it's 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 easy thereafter for a team like Spurs who have got the, the the pace and and the the class of a of a Bale and certainly of a Son and a, and a Kane. But if Fulham keep it tight, I think I think Fulham will be testing that that back line of Tottenham's as well, and and it, it could be a. I mean, if Fulham win that match, then then it's really is they've got a real chance of of staying up. Mm. Burnley have got uh, Leicester 
at uh, Turf Moor on Wednesday, Paul. As far as Leicester are concerned, what were the warning signs in that defeat by Arsenal, above and beyond the very sad loss of, of Harvey Barnes and also seeing Johnny Evans limp off? Well, they were a bit too easy to play against and, you know, Arsenal seemed to be able to turn it on against Leicester, which was a bit worrying. They they, they, were, they seemed to be cut open too easily and obviously uh, if Leicester are going to finish in the top four, they can't be that easy to score against uh, at home, even though Arsenal, that was a particularly good Arsenal performance where they got the taste for it and started moving the ball around sweetly and finishing well. So, you know, they ran up against a, a, a good team on the day, but... It's hard work for Leicester because they are uh, overachieving in in some ways. They the, the the advantages they have are that they've got a, a superb manager in my view. I think I think Brendan Rodgers is an is an excellent manager, and they have this brilliant recruitment system where they keep finding good players, and are able to integrate them quickly and well. But you can you can see it's a strain for them to be in those top four positions, and they they will have bad days. Equally, they'll have days when they look like they could win the league again, as they did so uh, miraculously not too long ago. Mm. I suppose we can't get away from the physical demands of of what's a unique season. That was their fifteenth game of the year on Sunday, Dom. You know, as I mentioned, they lost Harvey Barnes and uh, Johnny Evans. Injuries are going to be a problem for them. You know, you look at someone like you know Wesley Fofana, who, who to me looked to be the outstanding young player of the season, but he hasn't played since what, January. Yeah, that, that's what happened to them last year as well. They got to a point where they were they were ensconced in the top four. They looked as if that they were destined for Champions League football, and then you know, the likes of Madison were injured, and then Didi was injured, Pereira was injured, and they they couldn't really cope with the loss of so many key players through a rush of fixtures and the, and and as you say that the, the scheduling is is relentless i suppose at least if it if there is a consolation they have gone out of the europa league now so that's 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 one competition that they're not have to worry about in terms of the weeks ahead although i don't suppose that brendan rogers will see that as a consolation at the moment but the they're still in the fa cup that they have a rush of games and once again, that squad is being stretched, and I, I feel sorry for them. I, I think they've been they've been brilliant for the last two years, up until well, last season, up until the last ten games, really. And I just hope it doesn't happen to them again that it all catches up. But that's, I guess, when you're competing against clubs with greater squad squad depth and and who are able to rotate their players more, it's just the peril of the. Of of and the, and the brutal nature of the of, of the Premier League at the top top level, I mean, it could easily catch up with them and overwhelm them over the the weeks to come. But I just hope they find a way of of maintaining that that lofty position because they they certainly merit it. Some of the football they played this this season has been excellent. Mm. But you, know, you were right, I think, Paul, to actually hail Arsenal's performance. It capped a, a pretty good week for Mikel Arteta. You know, coming from behind late on in the Europa League in an unfamiliar stadium, and you had players of whom uh, there were doubts. Nicolas Pepe, Willian in particular, doing very well. What do you make of Mikel Arteta and his very rapid evolution as a coach? Because you know, when we think about it, he's only been there a year. Yeah, I'd go so far as to say is that if if Mikel Arteta can't make a difference at Arsenal, they might as well give up because he's doing most of the right things. Uh, he's he's bringing through young players, looking after them well, developing them. He's getting some of the uh, the passengers on the move. And he's asking them to play, I think, a um, very industrious, busy, high-energy style where they hunt the ball back and, and, and hunt in packs and, and work the way the other top teams in the Premier League do and for a long time, Arsenal teams, Arsenal players just weren't prepared to do that. You know, they, you'd get little flashes of brilliance from them in game games, but but too often you'd, you'd see them you'd see them walking around. They just they didn't have the intensity, the leadership, the industry to compete at the very top level. And there were signs in that Leicester game, not only with the kind of lovely attacking play, 
but there were signs in the way that they went hunting the ball back and pressing the opposition and, and taking their jobs really seriously, that he's getting into their heads at last and making them realise that if they want to be a successful team, they're going to have to work at it. Yeah, you know, I want to go almost back to the start of the programme when we talked, Dom, about you know the void left by fans. Liverpool had a much-needed win against Sheffield United. But I've, I've been wondering over the last couple of weeks, obviously the injuries have been catastrophic for them, but do certain clubs, you know, an emotionally charged club like Liverpool, for instance, does that sort of club have an inherent disadvantage when they have to play in empty stadiums? Am I getting all the hospital passes today? <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I know what you mean, and obviously Liverpool fans will argue that it's the case, but but every single club out there has has, has reason to say that that, that that you know the absence of supporters has hurt them and hurt their even clubs with with deplorable home records like my own can say actually it's I mean look. Palace, Palace's, Palace's one really, really excellent performance this season was in the second half against Tottenham Hotspur when there were 2,000 home supporters standing or sitting behind that goal, bellowing them on. And you could say the same for Fulham. Fulham had 2,000 fans in the cottage when they played Liverpool, the reigning champions, and they got a, a one-all draw that sparked their revival and, and gave them the belief that they could stay in the division. Every club out there has lost... It's twelfth man to use a cliche. I mean, it's it's. It, I, I I I'm not having that one club should have it. Should should you know be bemoan the absence of supporters more than any other. I mean, even Arsenal, you know, the library and all those all those criticisms. They 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 would be far more of a more daunting prospect to have. Even having two thousand fans within the Emirates than they are with none, and they and they miss them and all these. The fans desperately miss being there. They're having to watch this entire season disenfranchised, away from it all. And I suspect that's why some of the social media reactions are, are, are more knee-jerk than they've ever been. They're more volatile than they've ever been because people don't feel as if they're part of it at the moment. They don't feel as if they're able to to express their frustrations at a nil-all draw at home to Fulham or... Or you know a seven 0 home defeat to Liverpool. They 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 can't vent their spleen in any other way. And and I just can't wait for that moment that we to go full circle, as Paul said in his opening answer. Just opening the doors of these stadiums. I've been looking forward to that moment since March last year. The the, the tidal wave of emotion that will go into every single football ground from top tier to non-league when supporters are allowed back in and we get something approaching normality and. You clear your throat and you bellow a chant and you celebrate a goal, celebrate a tackle, celebrate just being there. Yeah, that was one of the things that really struck me about doing the film. We went up to Bury and I've never heard a fan talk so cogently and emotionally and impressively about what his football club meant to him than James Bentley, who essentially lost his football club, Bury FC kicked out of the Football League. He's aligned himself with the Phoenix Club, uh, Berry AFC. It is still a sadly poisonous atmosphere there. It's pitched fan against fan. But I suppose what it brought home to me, Paul, was the intrinsic role that a football club can have in the lives of ordinary fans. Yeah, and one of the features, obviously, of the last 12 months has been the loss of social contact on an individual level. You know, a lot of people have have lost their their friendships or networks. It, it, I mean, I'm talking person-to-person, face-to-face. And what, what the film does, it it makes you realise how many people have, 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 have drawn social contact and friendship and a sense of belonging from going to a football club. So it, it's, it's, really, it's really played into the experience of the last... 12 months, this problem of loneliness and isolation that we've had as a result of the, the COVID, various COVID lockdowns. And you saw there the Burnley, the Bury fans saying that this is where I go, this is where I've always been, 
to see familiar faces, to, to, to have friendly conversations, to feel part of something, to feel like I belong. And it was very powerful, that, because, um, because that had been taken away from him because Burberry had collapsed, not in this case because of COVID, but it made me realise that there'd be a lot of fans with uh, fans of functioning clubs who are going to walk back into those stadiums and say to themselves, you know, thank God I'm back among my friends. Mm. I suppose a final question for you both. How optimistic are you for the future of the game? Dom, you're, you're the hospital pass specialist, so you can take that one as well. <laughs> I just think football football finds a way of, of surviving and that, 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 that will continue. It may look different. It, it may have new innovations as, as some of the things that you just described. There may, there may be more hashtag Uniteds out there, that, that type of thing. But for... for for the vast majority of football fans, it will still remain, as Paul says, about going with your mates to games and enjoying each other's company in a in the context of a football match. My from that going back to that briefly to that that Palace Spurs game, I I have a video of uh, that I captured off the television of my brother, my best mate, and his best mate sitting behind the goal when Jeffrey Schlupp scores the equaliser and seeing them all celebrate manically and, and wildly as if it was like a normal scenario and they weren't socially distanced with about three seats in between each other <laughs> was just a wonderful flashback towards a bit of emotional normality from from a... It felt like a bygone era. It was only a year ago. But but that, that, I've been clinging to that and I, and I want to see that again as soon as possible uh, in, in, a, in a rammed football stadium. I won't dodge the question completely. I'd say that if I could just pay a debt of gratitude to football. Uh, do you remember when they, they said it could come back, they thought the nation would need a lift and we'd need something to look at, we'd need some live drama because, you know, theatre and cinema had, you know, gone down the pan. That promise has been fulfilled, really, and, and football will have kept a lot of people going, you know, in terms of just just being able to look at something that's unscripted and it's and it's and it's, it's every night certainly every night and it and uh, there's an excitement level still there even without crowds there's a there's a story there's a narrative I, I just think football has done a wonderful job of giving us something to look at talk about and you know feel part of even though most people have been on the outside looking in yeah well in the film i admit that i'd fallen out of love with the game's elitism and greed Meeting so many good people, doing the right things for the right reasons, renewed my faith in football. It made me think like a fan again, which I suppose can't be a bad thing. Is it time for fans to reclaim the game, to use that cliche? Well, I probably think so. What do you think? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Paul and Dom and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Podcast.